This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special Paddock Pass podcast. Why special? Because we're recording this right after the race. It's not the usual MO for us, but uh, with Neil stuck in Indonesia... I say stuck, but then, I don't know, there's quite a few Grand Prix teams who are actually going to stay there and enjoy the beach, I think, Neil, for some uh, some wind down before heading towards Phillip Island. Uh, but you do have quite a rigorous journey to get to Australia. I'm flying to Australia first thing Monday morning, which is going to take well over 24 hours. And, uh, well, Dave, you're, you're going to be stuck in the Netherlands, but I think you'll be using it to recover some precious hours of sleep, having lost quite a lot this weekend, covering round 15 of the MotoGP World Championship. Let's uh, quickly go to our grades for the Grand Prix before we tuck into what happened, um, the results, and then some of our main talking points. Dave, over to you first. Uh, out of 10 for this one. I think I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, uh, more for drama than for excitement. The racing wasn't fantastic, but we still end up with a really close uh, result at the end. So, yeah, good. I'm going to say an eight as well, uh, pretty much for the same reasons. I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate the Sunday Grand Prix more just for the extra length and the, the kind of endurance factor, really. You know, there was some very interesting dilemmas and decisions made with tyres. And I think it just, in comparison or contrast to the, the frantic nature of the sprint on Saturday, it's it's a little bit more strategic, it's a little bit more tactical, it's... um. I find this, the Sundays being rewarding in a different way. And I thought this was actually one of the more memorable Grand Prix we've had this season, actually. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Neil, uh, do you agree with us on, on the Lofty Eights? Or are you going to be a bit more modest, having um, sweated your way through most of it? I'm going to go for an 8.5, I think, because it was uh, pretty much everything Ooh. that you said. Mm. Interesting, intriguing, um, dramatic, uh, not necessarily... Uh, ridiculously exciting but um, yeah like there was just so much going on we had 14 finishers it was uh, it was chaotic, chaotic and when you kind of thought the race was going in one way then it went in another and then it became a totally different race going into the final third so um, yeah there were lots to lots to admire lots to pick through uh, which I guess we're going to do right now yeah, Peko Bagnaya, no wins in four Grand Prix, but then, uh, you know, a, a magnificent turnaround, it has to be said, um, ahead of Maverick Vinales, um, you know, again, podium speed, Maverick finally delivering um, a decent finish on the Aprilia, and then Fabio Quattararo making the podium, the top three for the second time in a row, and uh, three in a row now for the Japanese, so maybe they're not quite dead and buried. I know the, the, the Japanese brands are not really figuring in the fight for victory, but that is still a significant uptick on uh, what has been seen so far in 2024. Fabio Di Gianantonio in fourth place. Uh, that's a personal best in MotoGP. Uh, Neil, I'm looking forward to your account of your media debrief experience with him later on because it was very emotional, very sentimental. Um, you know, I, please speak. Yeah, and I, I can confirm that Fabio Di Gianantonio is absolutely not a regular listener off the Paddock Pass podcast because if he was <laughs> then he wouldn't have been so charming and uh, and uh, delightful towards uh, myself so um, you know um, yeah I, I kind of got away with murder there because uh, I've been a bit critical of him and I have to eat a lot of humble pie today uh, Marco Bezzecchi finished fifth ahead of Brad Binder uh, Brad Binder encapsulating pretty much a whole season of MotoGP all within one kind of 40 minute chase there we'll get to him later on Jack Miller in seventh just ahead of his home Grand Prix uh, does that raise expectations two solid races now for Miller but um, you know still quite a distance away from podium potential and Aya Bastianini uh, wow eighth place not too bad for the Italian Alex Rins in ninth also pretty spectacular considering his um, physical condition and his fitness and then the top 10 being rounded off by Alessia Spargaro who made perhaps possibly the biggest uh, mistake with tyre choice today. Uh, and Nea Bastianini also set the fastest lap of the race. I mean, he, you know, he he, he is now the, the lap record holder. So, yeah, I mean, it was Bastianini's position doesn't in any way reflect his uh, his race. You know, it really does look like he's he's for getting somewhere again. Elsewhere, Pedro Acosta took his seventh victory of the season in Moto2. He now has a 65-point lead, 125 points left on the table. So that really is 
uh, almost near our first match point for the Spaniard, you'd have to say, especially after Tony Arbolino's um, travails in that particular Grand Prix. And then, guys, the, the Grand Prix started off with a fantastic Moto3 chase. I think it was uh, less than two-tenths of a second split in the podium. Uh, David Alonso just ahead of uh, David Munoz. And, of course, um, victory for the first time for Diego Moreira. Uh, Neil, this is where I come over to you. Uh, first victory since Alex Barros uh, for Brazil in Grand Prix racing. How many years ago was that? 2005 in Portugal. Um, if you don't count Model E races, because um, Eric Granado has won a whole ton of those. And I think this year they're called Grand Prix because it's a world championship. So, yeah, if we're, if we're just going to Model E, then, yeah, uh, Portugal 05. Yeah, it's uh, been upgraded from a World Cup, so therefore you can be a Grand Prix winner if you're on an electric bike. So uh, no further comment. Um, Dave, what was your moment from the Grand Prix? What really stood out or hit home for you? I think my moment was um, after Mark Marquez crashed out of the uh, Grand Prix on Sunday, uh, just the look he gave his bike. I mean, we've seen it before where he was sort of giving his bike the finger. Now he just gave it an absolutely withering look, um, <laughs> look of disdain. I'm glad that I won't be riding you for much longer. Um, it was very much, uh, I mean, on top of everything that's happened, with, you know, I was finding about Mark leaving and going to Grassini, um, that that really made, it just put the whole thing into context. It, it framed the weekend nicely. So bad that he couldn't even come up to the media center to do his debrief today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I suspect that he won't be doing a great many uh, de media debriefs for the rest of this year. <laughs> Apparently, if uh, you don't show up to your, your Dorna TV interview as a MotoGP rider, you're open to a fine. And whenever uh, Mark didn't show up, his press officer reliably informed Dorna, don't worry, Mark has told me to tell you that he's perfectly willing to pay the fine. <laughs> Not that his television <laughs> interview today. This is this is the this is the trouble when I mean we've talked about you know uh, how much money um, Mark already has and why he's no longer doing it for the money. So you know uh, unless they start finding him sort of I don't know fifteen million uh, for every time he doesn't do his TV uh, uh, interview, then he's there's not going to be a lot of TV interviews he's he's going to be doing this year. Yes, uh, on to a certain Mr. Mark Marquez later on. Uh, for me, my moment was a similar kind of theme, really, Dave. Jorge Martin's crash uh, when he went down and just ended up looking at the Ducati as if to say, what on earth just happened? And then there was a whole kind of a five minute phase after the accident, really, where he was perched on the um, the service lane pit, well, on the service lane wall, watching the rest of the action. Um, and then he did the incredibly lame finger rolls if to say, yes, the next one will count. You know how much I love that gesture. Uh, and I just, it was complete disbelief. I think Martin was just, shocked that you know this could happen a three second lead and um, on the way to wrapping up uh you know a memorable victory after becoming world championship leader for the first time and you know what a start as well uh, you know on the Desmond Sedici and it just all unraveled uh I just uh, it was astonishing really and it was one of the the biggest shocks I think this season um in terms of the championship picture so uh yes that that was my moment and for you Neil my moment was on Saturday morning when we had qualifying Q1. It was probably one of the most dramatic Q1s that we've had all year because we had some real heavyweights in there. Luca Marini, um, the two factory Ducati boys, Johan Zarco. Um, so it was going to be an interesting session. And basically, um, you know, Pepe Bagnaio was slightly on the back foot at that stage. Um, he went fastest with, you know, a couple of minutes to go. And then both Marini and at the very end, Bastianini, managed to push him outside of the uh of the top two, meaning that he had to start from thirteenth on the grid. And um, you know, the uh the cameras were consistently cut into Jorge Martin sat in his garage and to Gigi Delinia. And Delinia's face was a real picture. Not happy at all to see his his main man, his main championship man, uh qualifying so lowly. And Martin was obviously like thinking this is uh this is great for me. And at that point we were really thinking, wow, Peko is uh is uh, hiding to nothing this weekend. It's going to be another terrible weekend where he hemorrhages points. Um, and it just showed you how things could change because that, you know, the the kind of turnaround from then, Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon was, um, well, meteoric. 
We'll come back to Peko Bagnaya in a moment, but um, at this point in the podcast, I'd just like to remind everybody, you know, rental.com help us out a lot. They have a street section on their website full of accessories. So if you do have a road bike, not just a dirt bike, then head over to the website, choose everything from accessories, bars, any other kind of components you need. There's a ton of stuff to sift through. So have a look. Also, a big shout out to some new Patreon members who have been following us uh, across the course of the Indonesian Grand Prix. Um, thanks for joining up. I hope you're enjoying the content daily from each, well, after each session of the Grand Prix, at uh, the end of each day, I should say. And um, we bring you lots of news and views and opinions. Um, let's go on to the world champion then, guys, because Neil, like you were hinting, uh, it was a bit of a bizarre race, but this was uh, a monumental performance by Bagnaya. Uh, Dave, it, it seemed to come a little bit out of nowhere. I think his attacking sort of prowess uh, in the opening laps laid the sort of foundation. Of course, he was helped by Jorge Martin and some other kind of weirdo goings on, which could be down to some of the tyre selections. Um, what did you sort of make of the Italian's uh, progress? Um, just really impressive overtaking, very impressive overtaking, um, a very aggressive, a very smooth. He was helped by the fact that they were using the medium tyre because he'd been complaining about the bike being very aggressive all weekend. Um, and with the medium tyre, the bike becomes a lot easier to handle. It becomes a lot less physical. It doesn't shake as much. Uh, the, the response is a lot smoother. Uh, so that made it easier for Banyaya to really get back into into the rhythm again and of course he chosen the hard tire knowing that he had to make up or the hard front tire knowing that he had to make up uh, uh, places and that gave him a real advantage coming through as well but it was a very impressive um i mean it was a very impressive ride through the ranks but it was also very impressive in the way that he kept his cool uh, throughout at the end he was starting to lose a little bit of pace and we saw Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quartararo come back to him um, but he, you know, just stuck it out and you could see at the end how much it meant to him and it really meant a lot to him, um, just emotionally and sort of psychologically, mentally. This was what he needed. He needed something to give him a bit of confidence back and this guy has given him a massive confidence boost. Neil, we're football fans, so we're quite familiar with the gesture of cupping your ear to the crowd as if to say, you know, what's going on or what you've been saying. Um, in my case at QPR, I can remember Mark Haitley being joining the club for a vast fee and the twat kept making the gesture for about six months afterwards to get rid of the boo boys. Of course, he was completely useless, so it's fully justified. <laughs> but Pekka Bagnai said in his TV interview afterwards that people speak too much. Um, have we been slightly guilty of uh, throwing a few darts in his direction? Because, yes, the numbers bear out the fact that he lost a 66-point lead, uh, but then he's still totally in this thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't really think there were many people saying that, you know, Peko's, Peko's out of it. Um, but certainly the comments yesterday after the sprint, after Jorge Martin was just fantastic, um, did seem to, you know, surround... Or, or, or basically, the, feel, the general feeling I think in the paddock was that Martin is on such a roll now, and he's in such a, a zone, riding so brilliantly well and so confidently that um, he's he's kind of almost unstoppable. Um, I think Mark Marquez made a comment saying that Jorge is my tip for the title, um, and Pecker was discovering just how difficult it was to defend the title. You know, it's even more uh, difficult than um, than winning the title the first time. Um, and I'm sure these comments would have got back to him and they probably would have riled him a little bit and added a bit of fuel to the fire for today. Um, but it was uh, yeah, it was terrific because um, yesterday was, it wasn't just a bad qualifying, but it was a really subdued race. He was ninth. Um, he was behind his teammates. He just looked very, very subdued, very kind of blunted. Um, and it's not really often that we've seen Banyal like that in a race when he's not been injured. Um, and, uh, you know, today just turned it around completely. Um, sensational start. A little bit fortunate with how things happened up ahead of him on track, down into turn 10 on the first lap. It was a bit of chaos with uh, Marquez and Miller. Um, he was able to take advantage of that, but he was attacking, attacking and from the game, seven places on the first lap was, was sensational. And, uh, yeah, you just have to look at his rhythm after that. It was a very, very consistent ride from Banyaya, I think, from about lap four. Um, sorry, about lap four. Uh, he was in the one-minute 31s, the mid-one-minute 31s, and he stayed there right until the very last lap where he just eased off ever so slightly. So, 
yeah, it was uh, it was a proper champion's performance. We really got to see Peckle's temperament today. It must have been very difficult for him over the last couple of weeks, seeing Martin just win everything before him. And everyone is lauding him on the same bike. And, you know, Peckle's having to sit and say, you know what, our time will come. And it it's all well and good saying that, but there must be part of you inside which is dying, which is angry, which is anxious, because this is a this is such a big deal. A guy younger than you, with less experience than you, on the same bike, beating you, and beating you quite convincingly. Um, and, you know, for him to to really choose this moment, I think it was a, such an important moment, not just because Martin crashed, but he showed a response and, yeah, showed by his world champion. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great summary, Neil. I think also when it comes to pressure, I don't think you're going to rattle Peko Bagnaia that way. As we've said many times, you know, he proved in 2022 that he's a rider that can really cope with being under the cosh. And, um, you know, I, I don't, as it stands now, I, perhaps I could be a victim of extreme recency bias, but I would still put money on Bagnaia defending this thing. You know, if it comes down, it's coming down to a straight duel between him and Martin. But I would still say that Bagnaia is the man for me because when it does come down to those high pressure moments, then he would get the nod, in my opinion, over the Spaniard. Yeah. And just because he's done this before as well, and he had this big sort of championship showdown last year. And I know we could argue all day and say he looked pretty nervous last year at Valencia, but he pretty much had the title one there and he was just doing what he had to do. What I sort of prefer to look at is the races before that, Thailand, Phillip Island, Malaysia, when he was pretty much impeccable um, after the, uh, the crash at Mateki. Um, really high-pressure duels, very close racing as well in those ones. Very easy to make a mistake at those tracks in the conditions that we have. Um, and yeah, it sort of just takes me back to after the Spanish Grand Prix. don't know if you remember, MotoGP.com did a little behind-the-scenes look at uh, the garage celebrations and Rossi was in the factory in Ducati garage. He was speaking to one of the, the, um, the Ducati engineers and he said, look, you know, and things are easy for Peko. That's almost when he's kind of at his most vulnerable, when he's at his weakest, because he maybe loses a little bit of concentration. He makes a mistake. We've seen him crash out of, of leads last year and this year on, on numerous occasions. But when his back is properly up against the wall, and it was today, like 13th on the grades, uh, you know the guy um, that you're fighting for the world championship is seven places ahead of you and in the form of his life. Um, his back was probably up against the wall and uh, he showed the the necessary reaction. Dave, for you, I mean, are you leaning more towards Martino Bagnaia? Uh, I think there's 185 points left in the championship and I um, uh, I think I'll wait until Sunday morning on uh, at Valencia to make a call. Oh, what a cop-out. No, because I, I I genuinely think it's it is very tight. I think it's very interesting and very exciting because it the, it is flowing backwards and forwards. I mean, uh, Jorge Marti was trying to put a brave face on it in his uh, in his debrief, saying, "Look, you know, I've um uh, I can't remember when his last crash was, but it was it was very early in the season." Um, so you know, he's only had two, or he, so far he only had two DNFs. And uh, yesterday, Pekka was saying, "Look, I've had five DNFs." Martin was saying, "Look, statistically, you're going to fall off at some point. Um, this was, it, it was going to happen at some point. Um, it just that it happened now. Now that is putting a bit of a brave face on it. But things are still coming extremely naturally to him. It's how he bounces back from uh, from this that we see. But then again, it also puts him back in." The position of of being uh, of chasing of of uh, he again as he keeps saying he doesn't have to win the championship. Uh, I mean he would be gutted if he doesn't because it's clear that he can win the champion. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens at, at Philip Island also because it looks like. The weather on Sunday at Phillip Island is going to be absolutely atrocious, um, and in that case, anything can happen. Uh, Bagnaya stopped short of saying this was his best Grand Prix win. He still cites last year in, in Malaysia as that as that first kind of choice, really, for him. So I think that says a lot as well. But just to sort of reinforce the fact that this is a very weirdo race, Dave, uh, you know, Pramac had a nightmare. Both riders didn't finish. And Joan Zarco tried to complete the Grand Prix with his rear ride height device locked down. Um, he was kind of interesting, actually, in his media debrief, saying that he decided to keep riding just to see how it would feel, almost gathering information and experience in a way. But uh, 
when, when we try to explain some of the stuff that we saw on the Mandalika street circuit today, tyres obviously come into it in a massive way. Um, 27 laps. I think the track temperature hit maybe 57 degrees. I mean, that that's a phenomenal amount on the tarmac. Um, how important was it, Dave? Because we saw like Alessia Spargaro effectively throw away any chance of a podium by opting for that soft option. Yeah, the track temperature actually hit 62 degrees at, some, uh, at one point and Michelin were giving the uh, track temperature temperature of 60 degrees which is you know stratospheric it's it's higher than we've seen uh, I, I think it's probably one of the highest temperatures we've ever seen at a race um that that makes it very difficult the the, the tires tend to be greasy they they tend to go greasy it makes it very difficult to actually uh, uh tell what's going to happen uh Brad Binder was interesting he said he was thinking about going to race the soft tire um but then his crew chief had said to him look go out uh, do the sighting lap uh, on the medium tire see how it feels and then you can make the call on the grid and that just that sighting lap because they do the sighting lap at a decent pace that sighting lap made him think okay yeah no i, I think the medium is going to be the better is going to be the better tire a lot of riders lost out on experience with the medium um, by only using them on Friday morning when they didn't really get a chance to to, to understand what's going on, so they uh, they sort of gambled and played it safe. And the the tires, if you got to the end of the sprint race with the with the soft tire feeling pretty good, then maybe you thought, no, 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 I think I think I can risk, it. I think I can make it happen. That's what said Alay said. Alay said, you know, he thought that he would get a drop after ten, you know, ten and twelve laps, uh, but it came after six or seven laps. You know, it came really early, and you saw him. You know, he was doing sort of mid thirty ones, and then he was dropping to then it was thirty twos, thirty threes, and I think by the end he was doing thirty fours. Um, they were losing a lot of time. Uh, it was also interesting that a lot of the Aprilias. The the Aprilias think that they manage their tyres really well. And a lot of the Aprilias, uh, because we saw Miguel, we saw, I think, Raul Fernandez as well. We saw um, uh, uh, both Aleix and Miguel Alvaro choose the, the soft rear. And we saw uh, Maverick Vinales quite clearly preferred the the medium. He'd actually used the, the, the medium um, in one of the practice sessions. He liked the mediums, um, uh, went with the medium, and he ended up on the podium. And, you know, within just a few metres, really, of winning the race. So the very high temperatures, the very specific uh, circumstances, also um, because you spend a lot of time on the right right hand side of the tyre, that loads the the tyre as well. You're braking a lot, you're accelerating a lot. Uh, it's quite a tough track uh, on tyres, and it was a bit more abrasive as well because of all the sand blowing around. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the track temperature obviously played a kind of part in this being a wacky race. Um, also, I think the wind was up today as well. One or two riders were commenting that that made it uh, slightly more difficult. Um, like we were saying all weekend, um, you get offline and it's just so, so easy to uh, to, to, to crash because um, obviously this track is used so infrequently. I think there was uh, a race here uh, during the kind of European summer months, you know, somewhere around July or August, but um, it's kind of like a an Argentina Termomasteria Hondo circuit in that it's used a couple of times a year. Um, and, you know, many riders were sort of saying that get offline ever so slightly and you're going to crash. I mean, Jorge Martin's crash was uh, a very minor crash indeed because he, he basically went in a little bit hot, I think, at turn 10, and picked the bike up, said some dirt had got onto his tyres, and then when he pitched into turn 11, that's when the front tucked away. Um, so, you know, it's kind of rare that you hear riders speaking about a crash in that, in that kind of fashion. Um, yeah. And then interestingly, I think, uh, Joanne Mir was saying also that just general fatigue at this stage of the weekend might, uh, might be playing a bit of a role in some of these crashes because, um, you know, um, we've talked a lot about this year about this new format and how it places, uh, extra demands on riders, the sprint every weekend, um, is a big, big extra added stress. And, um, you know, by the time they get to Sunday and uh, they can be a bit worn out, especially after a pretty punishing kind of run of races and travel like we've had in the last couple of weeks. So all those factors, I think, kind of contributed to what just 14 riders finishing and um, seven of them crash nine. And also racing in the tropics where it's really, really hot. You know, the conditions are, uh, are tough as well. It's not as bad as India, but it's still hot. Yeah, just that nice diversity in the World Championship. And we go to a circuit now where the uh, predicted temperature is going to be 13 degrees on race day um, with uh, some very 
kind of chilly, wintry winds blowing is going to be a totally different kettle of fish, a different allocation of tyres as well. Um, Dave, to your point about speed on the sighting lap, I think Ayuma Sasaki can probably justify that it's not um, the slowest tour of the circuit they do across the weekend. I love the look of total uh, incomprehension in Dave's face because clearly that's a man who didn't watch some Model 3 race earlier. Or oh, the sighting lap. No, exactly. I mean, the Motor 3, the throw Motor 3 race started a few, uh, uh, you know, sort of just a couple of hours after I went to sleep. So, no. Well, I I was actually looking at the video and wondering why you would completely blank there, Dave. I wondered if maybe my audio had switched off or something. But then I came to my senses after Neil's reminder. How on earth would you be watching the sighting lap of Moto3? Anyway, bad luck for the Japanese, that's for sure. And Neil, I, just to come back, I want your opinion on Fabio Quattararo for a moment because I think that's the third podium this season after Austin, India. Uh, Japan was a pretty desperate situation for Yamaha. But um, this was a much improved performance. I mean, he was... What, just over a second away from the win so I mean what kind of really led to this resurgence yeah it was uh, interesting Fabio came into the weekend saying that um, he expected this to be one of his better chances of scoring a podium this year um, he obviously had good memories from the test last year and also the race when he was in pole position on the dry and then second in the wet um, I think he was also saying that if you look at the rear tyre it's obviously the, the harder construction that Michelin brought here because of the crazy high temperatures that we've had um, in seeing rear tyre carcass that we had in Austria and India and that we're going to have in Thailand in two weeks as well. Um, and it was both Fabio and Morbidelli's opinion that that sort of fills the performance of the other bikes and basically means that they don't have such an advantage over the Yamaha's in terms of traction. Um, said he's been losing an acceleration um, still, but um, just the, I think that, and then also the, the kind of the track layout. I mean, there are parts of this track which are sort of really, really good for the Yamaha. And there were certain parts um, uh, towards the end of the lap uh, around turns 12, 13, 14 into that kind of final long ride, which they break down into for the penultimate turn. You could just see in the closing laps how fast Quartararo was gaining on uh, both uh, Balnaya and uh, Vinales ahead. Um, also, the kind of fantastic, uh, I think it's in the second sector where you come out of the, the kind of early chicane and you're going through turns five, six, seven, through the kind of flip-flop at eight and nine. I mean, really fast corners. We have to lose, use very, very high corner speeds. Um, you know, and that's just, you know, that's where Fabio Quartararo can really make his his kind of riding work. So, um yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was it was great to see um, just Fabio gaining on on the, the the first two guys because at first we thought, well, I guess the top five here, the top four, that'll be great. And then suddenly to see him emerging as a, a possible victory contender, it's been so so long that we've seen that. And for a man of Fabio's talents and abilities, it's a, it's a kind of crying shame that he's had the year that he has had. Um, and it was just another little reminder that um, yeah. When things are working, he can be just a real class act. Dave, from what we know and what we've learned so far, is Quattararo going to be on the pace in Phillip Island again, or is he going to sink back into mid-pack obscurity? Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, it should really suit him. Um, it should really suit the Yamaha as well. Um, I think the advantage which the which Fabio had at Mandalika was the fact that they have this medium tire which um, is a little bit it, it has a little bit less grip and it's a little bit less aggressive and one of the problems which the Yamaha has had is that it, it does respond very aggressively so that it's, that's made it much more difficult for them to uh, to accelerate smoothly which is why they're losing out on on sort of acceleration and also on uh, on braking a little bit as well so I, I think that this helps them uh, having a slightly less aggressive tire it, it, it brings everything back a little bit closer together because it allows the the, the Yamaha to use that smoothness and that speed again. Because you could see, I mean, the the, the rate at which Quattaroa was catching both Vinales and Banyaya was really, really impressive. But once he got there, there was nothing he can do. Um, we heard from Cal Crutchlow in, uh, in Mategi that he was saying what the bike is lacking is acceleration. Uh, and you have to say... 
Cal has been proven right here. You know, like he just, uh, they can't get out of the corners fast enough to be able to make the difference, you know, to, to be able to stick with someone for long enough to actually have a go. And they can't use the rear to break the the, the way that they used to be. If you remember, um, I mean, for me, like Fabio Quartararo breaking at um, Austria, a, a track where he has no be- business being fast and still ending up on the podium, I think in 20 or 21, um, that was just really, really impressive. And that's where they're losing. Yeah, exactly. And I think Fabio said in the press conference, um, he didn't uh, really overtake anyone in the race. I think the only person he overtook was uh, Alicia Spargo because either uh, Luca Marini was taken out in front of him, Brad Binder had to do a long lap penalty. Um, and then Spargo obviously chose the soft rear and started going backwards, I think, from about lap 10 or lap, sorry, lap uh, 12 or 13. Um, so, you know, fairly exceptional circumstances um led to Fabio being able to overtake. Otherwise it was it was impossible. And you can see that when he got to the when he got to the end, he was powerless to kind of attack uh, Maverick. Um and I did speak I did speak to his crew chief um a few weeks ago, Diego Gubellini, and he was sort of saying that, you know, when all the kind of ducks are in line, um, you know, when the the bike's kind of working out of the box and they kind of nail the setup and they're able to qualify well, then it is still possible. But once one of those things goes slightly wrong, then the weekend just kind of collapses like a, a pack of cards. So this is one of those weekends where Fabio was pretty strong from the start. Um, was able to qualify well. What fourth place is, is one of his better qualifying performances of the year. Um, and yeah, like for once, he wasn't trying to fight back from twelfth or thirteenth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really obvious. Uh, even just trying to get past Alicia Spargro, who was obviously struggling with his uh, with his rear tire, it still took Fabio a long time to get past. Uh, and that was the other thing that Fabio was saying in the press conference was, uh, we have to qualify in the front in in the uh, on the front two rows, and if you can qualify on the front two rows, uh, then he's in with a chance. Uh, that's their biggest problem. They haven't been able to get the the most out of their tires um, on a fast lap, which is where the Ducatis have really excelled this year. The Mandalika street circuit is 4.3 kilometers. I think for Brad Binder, it's slightly longer. Uh, Two long lap penalties for the South African. And, you know, if we take into account what happened to him on Saturday, there have been, my goodness, not many more dramatic Grand Prix for riders this season. What was our opinion on on Brad's performances today, guys? Because he had a braking issue, which essentially forced him to make contacts and knock off Luca Marini. He served one long lap for that one. Um, He said that the incident with Miguel Oliveira, which to me looked like he was just desperate to get past the Portuguese. Um, He said he made a mistake and misjudgment, hit uh, Oliveira, sent him off the track. Oliveira was another rider, didn't speak to the media afterwards. And um, yeah, I mean, Binder got up to the point where he was on for the top five until Marco Bezzecchi produced another small miracle this weekend, relegated him to six. But... Uh, goodness me uh, I mean Brad was wearing a helmet in special dedication to the South African rugby team and I think he uh, wanted to sort of you know scrum down himself I mean it was a yeah, pretty combative performance for sure um, yeah I mean two two kind of things that he held his hands up and, and, and sort of said like you know look my, my bad but it was quite interesting listening to both Brad and then Paul Spargo. Um, you know with regards to the Marini thing it sounds like Brad got a bit of a tank slapper coming out of the previous turn I think turn eight then coming around turn nine, breaking towards turn 10. He said he hit the brakes, pulled his brake lever all the way back to the handlebar. There was nothing there. And then I think he would just have to stand on the rear brake. And there was two guys to the outside of him, really being one of them. And he just thought, you know what, this is going to be really, really tough. Um, and then Paul was telling us that he crashed because of the same thing. And this is actually something that's been happening quite regularly with the KTMs. They're having a bit of an issue when they get a bit out. In the Mazzano test as well, now Exactly, yeah. Paul was saying this. With the Mazzano test, I think he crashed the Carboni um, because he had a bit of a head shake. Um, the, the the kind of uh, the, the calipers came a little bit, well, not loose, but they, they basically moved out. And then when he grabbed the went to grab the brake, um, it, it wasn't there. So, um, yeah, that's that's quite scary. Um, you know, and Binder had decent rhythm. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a wrecking ball. It was a, it was a chaotic encounter, but he was very tried afterwards and you know held his hands up and, and said you know sorry to both Marini and Oliveira so um, yeah it was one of those another kind of weekend that sort of got away from KTM yeah this is an, or this issue of the pads coming apart is uh, I mean it used to be it used to happen all of the time 
Uh, it used to happen a lot. And Brembo have had a fix in place for, I think, about maybe five or six years where the, the new calipers have a system to prevent the pads being pushed too far back into the, uh, back into the calipers. Uh, but when you have a very violent shake, then it can still happen. The, 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 the pads, what happens is basically the discs sort of flutter backwards and forwards and knock against the pads and knock, uh, and knock them back out again. And also just the, just the motion, the violent motion of the, uh, of the forks can, can give it a nudge as well. Um, it's very, it's very difficult. At least now, um, even with that, Binder said, look, he had something like five bar left when he was sque- when he was of brake pressure. Normally it's nine bar. So he still got, he had a big, of break, but nowhere near the, the the kind of pressure that he needed. Um, it, it, I, I think it, it's interesting that it is happening to the KTM's because it does mean that uh, in sort of acceleration in some phase of the corner, the bike is still very aggressive and is still causing that head shake. Dave, the teams are spending millions of Brembo for braking technology. I mean, it seems unbelievable that there isn't a fail-safe sort of contraption to prevent this. If there was, uh, they it would already be there. But the trouble is, it's it's just the endless cycle of technology. What happens is uh, Brembo have this system to prevent the, the it from getting uh, the, the pads from being knocked back. Uh, the braking improves, the bike improves, the riders brake later. That puts even more aggressive uh, stress into the bike. Uh, it makes it even more uh, uh, react even more aggressively. You get even bigger head shakes. It's just a vicious circle. Uh, of, this is what happens when you're operating at the limit. You keep on pushing the limit, um, and the limit—I mean, you know—the limit sort of stays the limit. It just moves, sort of thing. Um, the, the the problems are always going to be the same. It's just that they move and they they, they shift around in different configurations and patterns. Uh, two more things to talk about. Firstly, fourth place Digia, uh, personal best finish in MotoGP. I asked you two yesterday um, after the sprint whether we think that the Italian could earn the, you know, if not the Repsol Honda seat, then certainly a ride of Honda for next year. Uh, he hasn't done his chances any harm whatsoever with that result today. Uh, Neil, you're at the debrief. It was quite emotional. He was quite, uh, I, I don't know, quite forthright with his feelings. Um, what's kind of the opinion on Digia now? I mean, is this a guy who's making serious progress and has to be taken more seriously? Try not to smile. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a really solid weekend, wasn't it? Uh, sixth in a sprint yesterday and then fourth in the race today. And I know it was a bit of a race of attrition, um, but he still stayed on. He also had a bit of adversity as well because he was back, I think, uh, way far, 14th in the, the first lap. Um, he kind of got beaten up, I think, down at turn 10 when Mark and Miller and Banyaya all kind of came together at the same point. Um, and yeah, basically was left out to dry. Um, so to come back from 14th and end up in fourth, um, you know, comfortably his best MotoGP result to date. Um, you know, his previous best was eighth that we saw the last time out in uh, in Mitegi. Um, Yeah, it's it's impressive and it's you know kind of points to a, a general recent trend where there's been some good performances. I think he was 10th in Barcelona, then eighth um, in both races in Japan. Um, and yeah, maybe I was a wee bit harsh on on the guy um you know i was sort of of the opinion before that he ought to have been doing a bit better with the ducati gp22 at his disposal considering you know on a similar package last year and bastini was fighting for the championship um but um he did speak today quite motively about the last couple of months um just how difficult it's been with all the noise kind of surrounding his seat and his job and obviously uh, you know, it can't be easy to perform when you know that your job is on the line. Your job is probably slipping away. And I'm sure it's been his dream all his life to reach MotoGP. And, um, you know, that sort of situation is in, is in peril. So uh, quite difficult circumstances to try and operate in. And, um, you know, he's managed to find a way now that, uh, you know, the, the kind of future is settled for that team and he knows that he's not going to be in it. Um, he's starting to show you know, his, uh, his real talent. So, yeah, it's maybe a bit late to stay in MotoGP. I can't see him getting a seat at Honda. Uh, I just I just don't think that he's kind of showed the kind of necessary level. And when you have guys like Miguel Oliveira making themselves available, potentially, for that seat, you know, I don't think you can compare Digia as a MotoGP rider to Miguel. Um, but, but, yeah, he did himself, did himself proud this weekend and 
really strong ride. Neil, I'm glad I've showed you showed your big heart and your pure soul by being able to give Digier some compliments on his performance and the state of his career at the moment. Um, you're a good egg. I'm a horrible two-faced slag, I think, is <laughs> what I really am. I say one thing on a podcast and another thing to a writer's face. <laughs> yeah, Dave, what's he saying about us when we're not on the podcast? I'm getting to, starting to get worried now. Yeah, I'll have to uh, ask, uh, ask around a few riders. I mean, it's no secret that it's, it's pretty negative. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Digia is a Honda rider next year because we've spoken about the stopgap nature of that contract. Um, you know, HRC will be looking for another flagship rider from 2025 onwards. I mean, the person who ends up riding an RCV is essentially a Mar Marquez replacement. So uh, it wouldn't be such a bad move. I mean, you imagine, you know, Digia will be asking for maybe a two-year deal, which was a fair crack of the whip, considering the transition period Honda are going to be in. But then again, uh, it's, it's a contract. It's a way to stay in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, you take whatever you can get at this point. I mean, it is very late in the season. Normally, all of the contracts are signed and sealed uh, end of the summer break, really. But because of Mark Marquez's very late move, everything is suddenly open again. Um, I don't think he will go to a uh, to, to Honda, but he might. If Oliveira goes, he might take Oliveira's seat. He's he's been perfectly capable. He's shown himself perfectly capable. I think what he's shown himself. Uh, the weakness is that he doesn't do it when he need. He doesn't do it when he needs to do it. He only does it once um, he has no choice, sort of thing. It was the handling of pressure, which I think has been the problem. Speaking of contracts, um, I mean, personally, I can't see Miguel Oliveira being able to get out of a Prilia that easily. Uh, I just think you know the noises coming from management um, with both the manufacturer and the team make it seem that the Portuguese is tied quite heavily there. Of course, you know, uh, several riders have said anything can happen. Uh, in particular, Aprilia riders. But then, you know, I, I just uh, I think Digi would be the easier option again, just for a period of months, uh, just to put another Honda on the racetrack and get some more data or whatever. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that a uh, team boss might want to make a lot of noise about keeping his uh, rider is to uh, scare off potential suitors. Once again, on the subject of contracts, Neil, a couple of riders were asked about this uh, riders' union. Um, it's also been sort of circling social media. It's been a subject that they've been asked about throughout the season, um, purely because the riders have been slightly overlooked when it comes to the, the format of the championship, some of the demands that they're facing. Uh, you know, what's kind of new? What have you heard there? And it does seem that Silvan Gantoli, who's been doing some commentary and presenting work um, for TNT Sports in the UK, I'm an extremely articulate rider, of course, a bag, bags of experience in numerous series. Uh, he's been kind of picked as the chairman or the ambassador or the representative of this union. Alessia Spargro was mentioning something about it. He said it's still the early stages. Uh, you'd have to think that the riders having um, a unified or a uniform voice is going to be something positive for getting their views across. But then I guess the effectiveness of it, especially when it comes to something so arbitrary as um, riders minimum salaries or you know minimum pay or whatever, it's, it's going to be, um, uh, again, maybe a small transitional period for the makeup of the paddock. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, a few of the riders were speaking about this today. Um, there was indications that this was this was kind of a foot um, back in in Barcelona. I think that was where they had their first meeting on the that was either the Thursday or the Friday night. Um, and basically, every rider in MotoGP was there. Um, I think they have a WhatsApp group where they sort of keep in contact about certain things. And it seems that this is maybe a buildup of um, slight frustration um, over certain issues. I mean, no MotoGP rider was um, was spoken to or really um, considered whenever the uh, sprint format was announced last year. You know, the riders kind of learned of it whenever it was announced. Um, and, you know, many of them were pretty angry about that because it's a major impact on their livelihoods, on their careers, on their workloads. Um, and, you know, I think a few of them were quite cheesed off about this. Um, another example that a lot of the guys were going to stay uh, was at Silverstone, I think it was on the Saturday morning, we had a horrible wet day, um, uncharacteristic wet day in uh, the south of England. <laughs> and FP3, or the, the kind of Saturday morning session, and in Q1, I think the conditions were horrible, probably too bad for the riders to go out. A lot of guys did go out, a lot of guys crashed, and afterwards a lot of them said, this is stupid, you know, we shouldn't have, none of us should have been out there in the first place, it was dangerous. 
And I think they just want to basically have a united front where they can kind of all quite easily communicate together and say, look, this is the way it is. And, you know, they, they kind of have that to an extent in the safety commission, but this is pretty much just them having their their, their own thing separate to that. Um, and, you know, they have something similar in Formula One. You know, the riders, or sorry, the drivers there regularly go out, um, you know, for dinner, all speak amongst each other, um, you know, away from anyone from another organization like the FIA. Um, and, um, you know, they're able to, they're able to kind of present a unified uh, front on on something. Um, so, you know, a couple of the guys today were saying that they want to be able to form a united front and, and you know, have Quintoli head this potential riders union um, for things on safety, perhaps, um, maybe to be consulted a little bit more on changes to the format or changes to the schedule of a race weekend. Um, and yeah, then I think it was Luke Marini was saying, um, or maybe it was Zarco was saying, about salary, how they feel that, you know, now they're being asked to do more than ever, not just sprint races, but media commitments as well. Um, there should be a kind of minimum salary in MotoGP for uh, satellite riders because I guess a lot of them or some of the satellite riders feel that they're probably being underpaid. So, um, uh, yeah, a whole host of factors it seems to have built up and led to this. Yeah, I mean, there are some things which fit very neatly into the Safety Commission. For example, Silverstone, uh, or um, was it uh, India? Where? Oh no, uh, Mitegi, Japan. The the race in Japan when it was very very wet. That's obviously a safety mission, a, a safety commission subject. Um, but things like the change to the weekend format, and that there is a lot of of. Um, resistance within the paddock, within the riders, to the amount of media uh, commitments they they were they now have. We were joking about Mark Marquez, you know, walking out on his on you know missing his TV and walking out on 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 his TV commitment. But that is in part just because of the sheer amount of stuff that they have to do. One of the reasons uh, that um, they they change that they dropped the press conference on Saturday is because the riders said they just have so much to do they have uh the hero walk on sunday they have um uh, i think that the, there's various fan activities on a on a saturday evening it all takes time and luke marine was saying look if you're on a ducati it's fine you know we can get on a bike and we'll go fast and it'll and it'll be fine but for the other manufacturers you need to spend as much time as possible with your engineers talking through all of the problems talking through everything trying to figure out um how to improve the bike to catch up so if you're in trouble all of this extra time that you're spending doing media activities uh, and and fan related activities even though these are the people who pay the bills it means you can't catch up it keeps you it leaves you at a permanent uh, disadvantage so basically i think it's talking about these sort of issues just the structure of the whole weekend that's what they want this rider union for and also contractual issues and you know the the, the obvious stuff the fact that riders can be sacked without uh, without any recourse uh, where there is i mean there's urta which is the teams association which is basically, you know, the, the the union for the team bosses, but there isn't a union for the riders. But Dave, isn't this almost like a comment that Ertz is not really representing the interests of the people that make the show enough? Um, also, I think, you know, the riders are, have their own feelings about it. They say we can't overtake, we're getting washed out of, um, you know, I mean, look at Marco Pizzecchi's crash in Silverstone, for example. It's just a case of not being able to control the motorcycle just because of the evolution of aerodynamic forces. I just wonder how seriously this thing's going to be taken as well, because, uh, you know, Silvan Guntoli is obviously going to be swamped with, you know, uh, maybe inquiries from the likes of us about what's going on. And I think it was in Austria where Carmelo Espeleta was pretty adamant or even was quite quite aggressive that a riders union would not happen is not needed yeah i mean yeah obviously it's uh, absolutely not in the interests of Dorna for there to be a riders union the reason that urta doesn't represent the riders is because if you look on that big silver truck that they have it says international road racing teams association not riders uh, the the riders the riders themselves don't have a separate uh, representation and that's that's really quite badly needed i think so yeah no i mean th they need someone to speak up for their interests they don't have a, the interest that's also exactly why carmelo Espelator is so um is so 
objects to it so strongly because the last thing he wants is for the riders to organise to represent their um uh, their history. also because there's a lot of history there there's there is the history with uh you know rider boycotts with uh, r- rider resistance with you know the the, the things which Kenny Kenny Roberts has organised uh, in the past um so there is. Carmelo has a very, very long memory in these things. To us, they're all new. But for uh, some of the older members in the paddock, these things all happened 20, 30 years ago. Indonesia, winners and losers. Neil, who was your poor wretch from the Grand Prix? My poor wretch from the Grand Prix uh, was... I mean, there was quite a few, wasn't there? I mean, we could easily say Jorge Martin, but we've we've obviously spoken about him. Um, I'm going to go with Tony Albalino, just because... This kind of Moto2 title race is, it's not really a title race, is it? It's just a bit of a, a procession. Pedro Costa's taking the mickey, I feel. Um, and Arbelino wasn't really able to put up too much of a fight, unfortunately. At the start of the year, he was brilliant. He's, he's, he's such a talented guy. And even today, he's qualified 10th. He was third, I think, by the fourth lap. You know, it's really, you could not find a better rider in Moto2 in the first couple of laps of race. It's a real skill that he has, but um, he just hasn't had the kind of rhythm over a race weekend um, for a long time, really a, a quite a long time, uh, to be able to give Pedro Costa even a race. I think Le Mans was the last time that Arbelino properly gave Acosta a bit of a run for his money. Um, you know, and I also wanted to choose this to kind of mention a few things that Acosta said after uh, the, the race today. Um, he said that he had this massive crash on, on Friday morning in the first session which totaled his bike um, and basically meant that he missed the entire first session of the weekend. He said that crash happened because he came into the weekend a bit too horny. Um, he also said today that um, he was riding, the, the way he was riding was giving him big dick energy and um, he also when no one asked him a question after the press conference finished, he said, what do you think we're all fucking idiots, you media? So, um, you know, just 10, 10, 100 points for Pedro for uh, for that kind of series of uh, comments. Um, yeah, he's definitely got the, uh, he's got the kind of uh, uh, shoulders out, swashbuckling kind of approach, I think, needed to the to really succeed in MotoGP. I think it sounds like he's been uh, taking in too much sunshine. Uh, that and teenage hormones is not a good mix. Uh, I'm sure you can remember those days, Dave. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, uh, yes. It's a, one of the one of the joys of aging is that you actually uh, get to have a little bit of a rest now from that sort of nonsense all the yeah, time. Yeah, can't really remember the last time Dave was complaining of coming into the podcast in the morning. No, that, that it, it's been a few. It's been a few episodes, <laughs> certainly. My loser is Alicia Spargo for tire choice really i mean you know like he was really absolutely convinced that he was going to that he was capable of winning that he was capable of actually taking the fight to uh, jorge martin or at least you know being there with a podium jesus the soft tire was nowhere got knocked out of the uh out of the race yesterday just had a just had a miserable weekend also uh, one of the losers this weekend is me because i swapped out marco bezecchi for um uh for uh, Alicia Spargaro. So yeah, I mean, I zero nul point yeah, for me. I boosted him in my uh, in my fantasy team um, because he looked so good on on Friday afternoon. He looked genuinely like the the class of the field. Um, but uh, yeah, he really made a pig's ear this weekend. Taking Brad Binder right, obviously at the sprint, and then yeah, just nowhere in the uh, in the race due to that uh, incorrect tire choice. So and almost nul point for me. OC. Well, Dave, uh, Marco Bezzecchi obviously wasn't giving you big dick energy, that's for sure, if you ejected him from your team. Um, my loser is Mark Marquez, as I mentioned. Go all that way to Indonesia and just do, I think, six or seven race laps. Uh, and then for the the reason you mentioned earlier, Dave, just walking away with a Honda with, again, the kind of uh, aspect of sheer disgust. I have to give honourable shouts, though, to Yuma Sasaki. Dave, if you ever do watch the sighting lap of Moto3, You'll see that the Japanese picked a very inopportune moment to fall off the Husqvarna. And then um, he claimed afterwards that while he was riding with Jake Dixon's gloves for some reason, that uh, the bike wasn't quite 100% prepared uh, to enable him to push to any points today. Also, a little bit of a shout to Daniel Hogado, because, uh, you know, the Spaniard was brilliant in the first phase of the Moto3 Grand Prix, but then kind of decided he didn't want to go through turn nine correctly uh, several moments and then picked up enough penalties for it and I think dropped down to 14th. Twice, yeah. Um, which still makes twice turn nine, yeah. 
So yes, um, but anyway, when we come to our winners, I'm I'm going to go first, and I'm going to mention Mark Marquez again, because for that crash and that uh, gesture towards the bike, he must be thinking, well, there's a machine that's in fourth, well, a machine from the team in fourth that I'm going to be joining next year, and he's going to be riding Pekka Bagnaya's motorcycle that he won the Grand Prix with. So, uh, you know, he probably trudged through the gravel, had to look at the big screen and saw what was going on, and then thought, well, okay, things are not too bad. I'm going to get out of here, get to the beach, have a beer, and then think about 2024. So, um, Neil, your winner? Uh, I mean, uh, I've got to have to say uh, the VR46 Ducati team uh, and teammates, Luca Marini and Marco Bezzecchi, Probably Bezeki if I had to choose one of the two riders, but both of them were just so brilliantly impressive this weekend. Um, you know, Marini coming through Q1 on Saturday morning to take pole and then to finish second in the sprint race three weeks after he had broken his left collarbone. Um, you know, fantastic stuff. And even then, he was slightly outdone by Bezeki, who uh, was just so impressive. Like, just really quite. Almost like Jorge Lorenzo-esque, I would say, at Assen 2013. Um, you know, broke his collarbone last Saturday. His right collarbone uh, was operated on on Sunday. Uh, was feeling horrendous on Monday. Um, really thought there's absolutely no chance of uh, of him coming to Indonesia. Um, thought he would take a little rest on Monday night. Woke up on Tuesday, felt better. Um, I think he only decided to come on uh, on Wednesday to come and compete in this race weekend. Landed in Lombok. On Friday morning, uh, a couple of hours before the first MotoGP section for the weekend, um, and yeah, put it on the podium yesterday in the sprint and finished fifth uh, in the the feature race today in just conditions that you couldn't even begin to imagine. Um, it was uh, it was remarkable. It was one of those performances where you really thought, okay, this guy. I know he's been really impressive all year, but one of those things which made you think this guy hasn't just got the, the kind of insane raw talent, but also the hunger and determination to to really make it to the very top of MotoGP in years to come. Um, and uh, yeah, just so, so impressed. It was an absolute pleasure to kind of listen to all weekend as well as his uh, debriefs were really, really good value. And he's just got that kind of knack of being really bitingly funny, even when he's saying very little. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I asked him today, you know, you look, you look pretty good considering you just completed the race here. And he told us that it was because he had been getting on the beers pretty much uh, from the moment he, uh, he had showered and that's the reason why he was uh, smiling so uh, yeah Bezeki Bezeki big winner for me my winner is definitely uh, MotoGP um, uh, I mean it was we, we've we been talking a lot about sort of you know boring races and, uh, and uh, one rider dominating the championship but it's been such an eventful and dramatic weekend that it was just what we needed to sort of revitalise the championship yes Paco Banyaya goes away with a sort of with a, with a nice comfortable lead I think 18 points um, but there, you know, there's still a lot of points left to go, um, and it's it's just what it needed. Lots of unpredictable stuff happening. On to Phillip Island. It was the best Grand Prix of last season. Um, when it comes to Phillip Island, no, no, I have to say that your routine of uh, sharing a, a house with our colleagues, um, Rob Polarity Photo, and also Cormac Ryan Mean, and, and and sleeping on the floor with the airbed is it's always a bit of a a run like a, a, a dance with peril considering the creepy crawlies that can enter said accommodation in australia are you ready to um you know go into that particular uh tunnel of peril once more yeah it's not sleeping on the floor it's sleeping on an inflatable mattress because there's only a set number of bedrooms in this house but it's a lovely house and it's very well located um and um it's generally a bit of a good time there so uh yeah you are running the gauntlet ever so slightly i'm praying that there are no is it Huntsman Spider, I think, that uh, are quite common on that part of the world? Um, but yeah, I haven't seen one yet. So I hope that uh, trend continues uh, in the week to come. Apparently, the pressure associated with airbeds attracts them more than any other thing. So uh, we'll have to see uh, you know, if we can make it through the weekend with you in good shape, mate. So, uh, Dave, will you be getting up to watch the full extent of uh, Phillip Island, including warm-up and, and sighting laps? I actually might uh, watch the warm-up because that's about the time that I go to bed. But um, <laughs> getting up, uh, I think the race, race time is still like 5 a.m. European time, which is um, not, not, not big or clever. Lastly, Neil, have you got enough pr appropriate clothing for the, uh, you know, the Melbourne or what state is it again in Australia? Victoria. Is it Victoria? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, it's not. Um, although, yeah, there's been several times that I've looked at a seven-day forecast, and then by the time you actually get to the 
get to the time in question, um, what was predicted seven days before is, is not really accurate. But at the moment, they're saying that it's going to be very, very, very cold in Phillip Island on Sunday, race day. Um, and there could be potential gusts of wind up to 60 kilometers an hour, which would uh, make racing there very, very dangerous. But as I said, that's the early seven day forecast. But I have heard that uh, race direction are slightly concerned by um, the possible conditions we might face there. But let's give it a few days and, uh, and see what it's like when we get down there. A few days indeed. We'll be back on Thursday with the first Paddock Note show from the Australian Grand Prix. In the meantime, thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. Send us any questions or any comments or thoughts and we'll try to answer them at least before the next show. Thanks for listening.